You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 6 this morning in our study. It's at the end of this wonderful little letter by the Apostle Paul, and in a very practical session. section, I didn't know that uh, Brother Day was going to be teaching from Ephesians 5 this morning, and so uh, he really did set up our study this morning, and so did the Scripture reading. So before we open God's Word, let's commit our time to our Lord and ask His blessing on it. Our Father, we know that we are dependent on You for all things by Your grace. We know that we have a relationship with You through that grace that You gave us in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we are even dependent now to understand Your Word as we study it together. We pray that You would be our teacher, that You would overcome every weakness of the one speaking and simply minister Your Word to every heart Uh, We pray that you would accomplish all of that for our joy and do it for your glory, Father. In Jesus' mighty name we ask it. Amen. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And you have an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along if you care to. I was uh, very gracious and lenient. I did not put any um, blanks to fill in for you. So see, you get the day off. All you have to do is follow along. And I thought because this comes at the end of Paul's letter in a very practical session, it might be worthwhile to spend a little time sort of setting this up with a little bit of background. Because when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian Christians, he did it from prison. This is his first prison uh, imprisonment in Rome. And uh, he wrote this letter in response to being visited by a man named Epaphras. Very interesting man and a very committed and dedicated man to the cause of Christ. The uh, Colossians were in... Uh, the Lycus Valley, which was about 125 miles inland from the city of Ephesus in what is now western Turkey. So from where Paul is in Rome, all the way back to this little town of Colossae in the Lycus Valley, is over 900 linear miles, okay? So you can imagine how difficult it would have been for Epaphras, this man from that church, to travel all that distance just to be with Paul. But he did that. And uh, he's a very interesting man because Paul did not plant the church at Colossae. Epaphras did. We know that from this first uh, section that Paul writes in this letter. He uh, thanks God for the Colossian Christians. And then as he gets down to verse 7, he's talking about the gospel. And he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So Epaphras was the one who planted that church, and he also probably planted the the other two churches in that area, the one in the town of Laodicea and Hierapolis. There are three little towns that are sort of form a little triangle there in the Lycus Valley of what is now western Turkey. He also had to travel all the way from there to Rome to visit Paul to talk to him about what was going on in that church. And so he says in verse 8, speaking about their trust in Christ and that's the establishment of that church, he says, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras 
planted that church and was ministering probably in the other two cities as well, and traveled all the way to Rome to visit Paul, because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and this is Gentile country. These were Gentile churches. He was an effective communicator, and uh, so uh, he's all that distance he traveled in order to talk to Paul about a terrible problem that was going on in that church. There was a heresy that had taken root, and uh, Paul really does write this letter in order to respond to that heresy. And uh, very interesting, he may probably also have been arrested while he was visiting Paul. We have an indication of that from the end of Paul's letter to Philemon, who was also a member of the Colossian Fellowship. The end of that letter, Paul mentions Epaphras. He says, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ sends greetings to you. So Epaphras was probably also jailed at the same time Paul was. And uh, we also have a little indicator of that at the end of this letter, right when he gives his final greetings in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, and he mentions another man that is with him, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was the slave that had left Colossae and his master, Philemon. And so there's that connection there. Onesimus is also with Paul. He's sending both of them back. Now, if Epaphras, who is with him, who came from Colossae, was the one who planted that church and who brought Paul news of this heresy, uh, it seems like he would have been the logical one to send back with this letter, but he doesn't. He mentions him in verse 12 at the end of chapter 4, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Paul's connection with the Colossian Christians was not because he had planted that church and had direct ministry with them, but it came through the information he had received from this man, this faithful servant of the Lord, Epaphras. And it's no wonder Paul refers to him as our beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Now, Paul had ministered in Ephesus, which is about 125 miles to the west of the Lycus Valley. He had ministered in Ephesus for two years. In fact, he had set up probably what it was a school, a training school, in a place, a building called the Hall of Tyrannus. That's recorded in Acts chapter 19. Quite probably where Epaphras had met him and learned of the gospel and then had taken it back up into the Lycus Valley. So that's probably the connection there. Well, after his opening greeting and his prayer for the Colossians in chapter 1, Paul launches into this magnificent statement, starting in verse 15, of the absolute preeminence of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 15 and following, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's a tremendous statement of Christology. And we're going to see probably why Paul did that when we look at the heresy he was trying to deal with. Tremendous statement of the absolute sovereign overarching dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Lordship. Well, scholars have long debated the exact nature of uh, what they call the Colossian heresy. It's not really known exactly what it was. We sort of have to reverse engineer it and put it together by how Paul, Paul responds to it. And so it is thought by that first response of Paul about the sovereignty of God in Jesus Christ over all things, that it was probably a, uh, a mixture of things. One scholar who calls it the Colossian syncretism says this, Syncretism is the blending of different thoughts and practices of the various religious beliefs in the area to make a comprehensive belief system, sort of like a theological hobo stew. Each group brings in a little of this and a little of that from their religious beliefs and drops them into the kettle, stirs in hopes that they all blend well and that the stew is tasty to the eater. Okay, So it probably was this mixture of things. Evangelists and missionaries have long struggled with the idea that uh, when they go into an area and share Jesus Christ and tell people about the grace of God and the love of Christ for them, very often people are quick to say, okay, I'll take it. I'll take Jesus. The problem is, as they come back and look at it again, they realize what they've simply done is to add Him to their existing belief system. Maybe their traditions or their ancestor worship or some pseudo-Christian religious system. What they fail to realize these people who do that, and it's probably because nobody tells them, is that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord, and that lordship is not shared with anything or anyone. He has the right to demand exclusive worship and will not share His glory with another. And any addition, any uh, even if it's something very good that's added to the gospel, pollutes the gospel, perverts it, and it's not the true gospel. And this is probably why Paul begins to counter that heresy with this tremendous statement of the absolute sovereignty of Jesus Christ over all things. Why? That encompasses everything that they could think of that's a false system. Okay, Some theologians call this cosmic Christology because it's a statement of the absolute hegemony of Jesus Christ over everything and anything. Now Paul returns to that great foundational truth in chapter 2 as he moves along. He says in chapter 2, speaking of Christ again, verse 3, "...in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Wisdom and knowledge. Probably one of the elements of this false teaching system was the wisdom that they thought they had, the philosophy or love of wisdom. It probably was even Greek philosophy that had been mixed in with the gospel. And knowledge, probably a reference to the early Gnostic movement that was common as well. But Jesus Christ is Lord over all of that, and He does not share His glory with anything. And then Paul gives them the very practical reason why he's telling them this. Verse 4 of chapter 2, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Plausible means persuasive or enticing. 
Whenever someone follows after man-made, extra-biblical religious systems, no matter how good they sound, how plausible or enticing, they are being deluded. It is delusion. It's not just one more system or one more legitimate form of belief. And then Paul sums up this entire section on false teaching by gathering up all of these false teachings in in chapter 2, verse 23. These, he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." external, extra-biblical, man-made religious ritual cannot accomplish internal spiritual reality. And it doesn't matter how good it sounds, how good it looks, how wonderful it is and everything, and it's going to sound wonderful because it has to be appealing to the flesh. It cannot accomplish what God wants to do, which is internal spiritual reality. External religious ritual cannot accomplish internal spiritual reality. As he moves into chapter 3, Paul now focuses on the new life that these believers have in Jesus Christ. It's part of the whole theme of this, and as we have seen in our reading through um, Ephesians, it's the theme of that as well. New life in Christ uh, internally should produce new life externally. Our new walk, as it says. And he even practically applies it to every area of life. Why? Because Christ is sovereign over area, every area of life, including all relationships. And so he deals with relationships at the end of chapter 3. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters, every area, every relationship is impacted by the new life of the new man. And so we, as we arrive at chapter 4 and our passage that we're going to look at this morning, what we're going to see is Paul basically focusing in on the new speech of the new man. This is an area of the spiritual life that's very important. It's very critical. And uh, it's very interesting. We talked about Ephesians 5 and uh, what that means. And as you know, Ephesians is sort of a sister letter to Paul's letter to the Colossians. They share many of the same topics and so on. In Ephesians 5, and Dave was uh, talking about this this morning, 5.18, that filling of the Spirit passage. That passage, the results of being filled with the Spirit, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. The the language of the new person in Christ, the person who is Spirit-filled, is described there. But in chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 16, Paul says, "...let the word of Christ dwell in you richly." And the first thing he says is teaching, which is a speaking or a verbal uh, endeavor, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The results of being filled with the Spirit are exactly the same as the results of letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so we have to see that connection there. Uh, theologians call this the concomitant working of word and spirit. They are always together. And here we see the results being the same, which means they must be very closely related. And certainly it is. The filling of the spirit means that the word of God is dwelling in you richly. 
And that brings us up to our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, which really is also a result of being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. From Colossians 4, 2-6, the new life in Christ should produce in the new man The first thing we're going to see is new speech toward God, and that's prayer. That's our prayer life. So important. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly. The idea of persistence or perseverance in prayer. Back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, And so, from the day we heard, heard about your faith in Christ, heard about your uh, new life in Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This concept is used by Luke in his gospel, um, or in the book of Acts, uh, of those gathered in the upper room after the ascension of Jesus Christ while they waited for the Holy Spirit in Acts one fourteen, He says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And later on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people who were heard the gospel and were saved and responded and were baptized, and uh, you have to understand at that point in time, they were filled with the Spirit because the Spirit was controlling them at that point. It says in Luke 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. If you want to know what the filling of the Spirit looks like, it's not some sense-oriented, whizzy experience. It looks like this. That's the picture. Not only were they persistent in their devotion to apostolic teaching, they were devoted to prayer on the day of Pentecost. And uh, this is what... The old word, some of the best words of the old words, importunate praying. You may have seen that along the way. In fact, Jesus in Luke chapter 11, you don't have to, to turn there. You might look that up sometime. That He tells the parable about the importunate neighbor who wanted bread, who kept going back to the neighbor asking for bread, asking for bread. And finally, the neighbor gave him the bread. This man was persistent in his asking. Jesus taught that parable in response to the disciples asking him, teach us to pray. So this is instructions from Jesus Christ himself about how his disciples are supposed to pray. One commentator defines it this way. This kind of praying may seem selfish and perhaps childish, but it really isn't because it is prayer in the will of God and is usually for others instead of self. In fact, the source of this kind of prayer is right from the heart of God. It is how the Holy Spirit pleads and prays for us, Romans 8.26. It is how God persistently and urgently seeks us out, speaks to us, and constantly seeks to help us and love us, Jeremiah 31.3 and John 6.44. Thus, when I pray with importunity, there's that old word, I pray for myself and for others the same way and with the same heart as the Holy Spirit does. I follow after His prayers. I pray after His desire and heart. True, importunate prayer, then, is prayer that is drawn by God and that follows after God. It is prayer that is aroused and energized by the Holy Spirit and that moves our soul toward God and presses our desire upon Him repeatedly with urgency and perseverance. 
but also with patience and waiting until our prayers are heard and answered. I know that some of you may not have had a real close relationship with your earthly father. I can relate to that. But please understand this. Our heavenly father is not like our earthly fathers. He is not. You don't bother him when you press your prayers and when you repeatedly pray, when you're persistent in your praying. God longs to hear from his children. He does. He, you don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to, you're not bothering him if you uh, pray persistently like that. Pray and be persistent. New life in Christ should produce new speech toward God, our prayer, and that prayer should be persistent. Another thing Paul says, while we're being persistent, we are to also be watchful, he says. Be watchful. It's actually the participial form watching. In other words, while you're being persistent, be watching. It's uh, used to speak of continuous action in the tense that it's in. It's actually drawn from the imagery of guard duty. In fact, Peter uses this word in the context of warning his Christian readers in 1 Peter 5.8. You've heard this verse. Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, if you were given nighttime guard duty and they put you out on the perimeter at night and they said, uh, stay awake, be watchful, be alert. Oh, and by the way, out there is a lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. All right? You'd probably stay awake. I know I would. That's the imagery that's going on here. And it's also used in the context of the second coming of Christ. But it means more than to, to just keep alert for His coming. It has more of the idea that in light of His imminent coming, watch how you live. And in other words, watch your walk, to use Paul's imagery. That's one very important reason why the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is so important. It needs to be taught and preached. Why? It's supposed to be life-changing. Right To anticipate the coming of Christ, knowing that it is imminent, should change how we live our lives. It's a very practical doctrine from Scripture. And to the strong command to be devoted and to be watching, Paul adds the ingredient that he is so well known for, be thankful. Fundamental to our new life in Christ. The prayer of the new man is to be saturated with gratitude toward God expressed in prayer. Paul was not only the apostle to the Gentiles, and he was, I think he should also be called the apostle of thanksgiving, because he was that as well. Back even back in Colossians chapter 1, he doesn't get too far into this letter before he says this in verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. And even in chapter 1 again, verse 11 and 12, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance with, and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Before Paul commands these Colossian Christians to pray, he models it for them by praying for them. And again, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he's thankful all the way through this letter. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And he's not done yet in this letter. Chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, he says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be 
thankful. Paul was continually thanking God for the people he ministered to and telling those folks that he was thanking God for them, and he modeled that as well in his thankful prayers. Just listen to a few examples. In Romans chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. In his opening lines to the Corinthian Christians, chapter 1, verse 4, now these are the Corinthians. They had some serious problems in that church, but Paul still thanked God for them. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And in the first chapter of his letter to the Ephesian Christians, Paul is true to form when he says in verses 15 and 16, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That same combination of fervent or persistent prayer for his readers overflowing with gratitude to God, is found in his letter to the Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Don't know how many more ways Paul could uh, say that, right? And to the Thessalonian Christians, who were also well aware of Paul's grateful intercession for them, when he wrote this in his first letter to them, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And even in his second letter to that same congregation, you know, he thanked God for him in the first one, but that wasn't enough for Paul. In the second letter, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is only fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of each one of you all toward one another increases all the more. When he wrote his letter to Philemon, who was part of the Colossian Fellowship, Paul wrote this, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. And even in his very last letter, written during his second imprisonment, and his last because he was going to be executed, he knew he was going to die. He tells Timothy that in 2 Timothy. His life is over and he knows it. And yet what is he doing? He's still praying for other people. He says to Timothy, I am grateful to God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I unceasingly remember you in my prayers night and day. Get the picture? Paul was a prayer warrior, and on the top of his list was prayer on behalf of those he was ministering to, and on the top of that list was gratitude, gratitude, thankfulness to God. Paul wrote 24% of the New Testament, 24%. When you look at the word group that includes the word thanksgiving, thankfulness, and giving thanks, okay, you collect all that together, in the entire New Testament, even though Paul only wrote 24% of the New Testament, in the entire New Testament, that entire word group, 75% of the references were by the Apostle Paul. Paul was a thanksgiving machine, who understood that new life in Christ should produce a new walk. And that new walk is marked by new speech toward God, saturated with thanksgiving, heartfelt gratitude for God, who He is and what He has accomplished. For Paul, that gratitude by the believer is the hallmark of new life in Christ. And by the way, the flip side of that coin is, for the Apostle Paul, a failure to be thankful, a failure to express gratitude to God, is the hallmark of apostate unbelief. Listen to what he says to the Romans. Romans chapter 1. 
For although they knew God, apostasy always starts with some knowledge of God that is rejected. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. New life in Christ should be manifested, is manifested by continuous prayer through an alert mind that is saturated with thanksgiving to God. And that new speech should also be purposeful. This is D on your outline at Roman numeral 1. Now, there's nothing wrong with uh, general prayers, you know, Lord bless the world, bless the universe, but Paul's not too interested in that. He wants the prayers to be purposeful. We might even say targeted. This is verses 3 and 4. Paul says, at the same time, while you're continually, steadfastly praying, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the ministry of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is the Apostle Paul, but he's not too proud to enlist prayer for his own ministry. Prayer to God by the Colossian Christians. Paul prays for them, he's setting the model, and then he enlists their prayer for himself. Because Paul knows how dependent he is on the prayers of God's people. This is very, very important. You might say, well, wait a minute, maybe Paul doesn't understand the sovereignty of God. If God is going to uh, sovereignly uh, do his work and bring people to himself, maybe uh, Paul just doesn't understand the sovereignty of God. Well, then you should go back and read chapter 115 and following. That's a statement of the absolute sovereignty of Christ over all things. He understands the sovereignty of God. He also understands that the sovereignty of God encompasses the means by which God accomplishes His sovereign purposes, right? One of those means is the prayer of His people. Tell you, you and I are going to hear about prayer a lot as evangelicals. We hear probably hundreds and hundreds of times, right? Importance of prayer. I've got to pray. Pray for this. Pray for that. One of the things that should revolutionize your prayer life, if it hasn't already, is the understanding that God moves through the means sovereignly through the prayers of His people. We have an example of that in Genesis chapter 25. You don't have to turn there. Let me just uh, run through this real quick. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 25, of course, God has given His great covenant to Abraham in chapter 12, and that is a transgenerational covenant. That is a covenant that's given to Abraham and then to his descendants forever, and it's repeated over and over again. One of the promises given in that covenant is that he was going to have progeny. He's going to have children, right? Isaac is the answer to that. Well, when we get to chapter 25, um, Isaac... It focuses in on Isaac and his life. And remember, this transgenerational covenant promised them to have descendants forever, it says. And so when it talks about Isaac in chapter 25, verse 20, it says, And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now somebody might say, wait a minute, you have a promise of children. What's the point of praying here? Well, because Isaac understood the sovereignty of God. That in his sovereignty, that sovereignty includes the means by which he accomplishes his sovereign purposes, and one of those is the prayer of his people. And so the answer to that, it says... Uh, he prayed for his wife because she was barren, and 
the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. God accomplishes his sovereign purposes through the prayers of his people. And so Paul has no problem at all. In fact, it's vital to his ministry to enlist the prayers of the Colossian Christians for him. And it's so unselfish, so unselfish. Pray for us, he says, that God may open to us a door. I mean, Timothy was with him and others were with him. Epaphras is there with him. And he also prays for what door to come open. Now, if it was me, I'd probably be praying, yeah, I want to get out of this stinking jail, right? Uh, But Paul says, that God may open to us a door for the Word. Paul is concerned about the Word of God more than he is about his own freedom. And what does he want to do? To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And what's his personal prayer? The thing that he wants more than anything as far as his own personal ministry? That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He doesn't say, well, I want to be known as the greatest theologian of my day. I want to be known as the great Apostle Paul, maybe the most uh, brilliant theologian. And he was a brilliant theologian. He was a Pharisee. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel would have been the premier Jewish teacher of his day. And yet all Paul wants to do is that the door would come open for the Word of God and that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul's request for their prayers And his main purpose was to have an opportunity to clearly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that prayer request that he mentions naturally moves him into Roman numeral 2 because if he wants to make it clear, you know that he's thinking about those outside the church. And so we arrive at Roman numeral 2, new speech toward outsiders, our witness. And he says in verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, when you first read that, you may think, well, what does this have to do with with, uh, any of the rest of this? Well, someone said what believers are gives credibility to what they say, right? For the Apostle Paul, he can't separate the walk and the word. You've heard that, right? We need to, our word, our walk needs to match our word. That's what Paul is concerned about here. In other words, he's saying act wisely, live wisely, or to use Paul's metaphor, walk wisely before outsiders. To walk in wisdom is to live life according to biblical wisdom. New Testament scholar and commentator Douglas Moo has a very good word on this. Wisdom, of course, is a very broad concept occupying in biblical thought a crucial intermediate stage between thought and action. As believers immerse themselves in the life of Christ, having put on the new man, their minds are renewed by God's Spirit. Wisdom will enable us to determine just how, in given situations, our new way of thinking, our new set of biblical values should be put into effect. Wisdom is in between thought and action. When I read that, I thought, yeah, I can remember when I was about, like in high school, about 16, 17 years old, the distance between thought and action wasn't very much. All the men are laughing. What I needed was something in between the thought and the action, you know, like wisdom. And uh, our parents and those around us, the adults, were continuously trying to put some wisdom in between thought and action. You know, I heard a lot, Jeff, think, consider the consequences. Jeff, think before you act. You know, of course, when you're 
15, 16, 17-year-old young man, easier said than done. But that's what he's talking about. And the thing, that same thing is true in our walk with Jesus Christ. A new mind, a renewed mind, we need to employ wisdom in order to know how to walk before the world. That's our testimony. And then he says, be wise in your use of time. Sometimes this is translated redeeming the time because it's a compound word made out of uh, ek or out of and the uh, Greek word for marketplace or to buy. So to buy out of, and it carries with it the idea of a strategic use of time at a strategic point in time. Now the context, of course, is our witness to the outside world. So, and, and there's some variation among commentators, but the best understanding in the context, walking wisely toward outsiders for the purpose of sharing our faith with them, and Paul is exhorting believers to buy up all the time available to us, or as one translation actually says, make the most of every opportunity. And that is being wise in your walk. So we who have new life in Christ will have new speech toward God, our prayer, and uh, new speech toward the outsiders, our witness. And that brings us to point three, Roman numeral three, new speech toward each one. Very general concept, but so important. He says in verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So important. Be gracious. Kind of basic, huh? If you're going to witness to people, you're going to tell people about the grace of God and how He was gracious to you, we should probably do that in a very gracious way. We are to exhibit the same grace that God gave to us, and there's no place in the believer's life for abusive speech okay, to those in the church or to those outside the church. It's an amazing thing. I mean, I've seen videos of people who are supposedly going out and doing street evangelism, and of course they get yelled at, screamed at, and all kinds of things, and they sort of begin to participate in the yelling match. And uh, it's an amazing thing to watch. Remember, unsaved people are not the enemy. They're not the enemy. Satan and his demons are the enemy. And then he says, while you're being gracious, be seasoned. Now this one is very important. What he says here is walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now with this one, we have to start out with what it is not. Seasoned with salt is not salty speech, as we say in our language. It's just not. Not salty, I hate to pick on the Navy, not salty sailor speech. That's not what he's talking about. It's an amazing thing that in recent years has become kind of fashionable in uh, certain evangelical circles for some of the, and they are some of the younger guys, to use foul language, four-letter words, and even some graphic sexual references in their evangelism, but also from the pulpit. Maybe they never read 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul, to a younger man, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And to another younger man, Titus, who was ministering on the island of Crete, the older man, Paul, said this, Titus 2, 7 and 8, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, which is a verbal um, endeavor, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, 
so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Sound speech, he says. That's the word, the Greek word there is hugiais. One of the forms that it takes is hugainas. We transliterate that into English and we get the word hygiene from it. You let your speech be hygienic, not contaminated, not filthy, not dirty, okay? And uh, this is, both of these passages are, are to younger men. There is no excuse to do what is commonly done sometimes in certain circles. So, seasoned with salt is not salty sailor speech. But what is it? One commentator, and I think he gets it right, salt probably represents both attractiveness, since salt makes food appealing, makes it taste good, and wholesomeness, since salt was a preservative that retarded spoiling or rotting in food. The Christian should wisely suit his or her speech to each situation. This is all about how we speak to unbelievers as new creatures in Christ, part of our walk with Jesus Christ. Remember, you're not there to win an argument. You're there to win that person. Okay, That person, even if the Holy Spirit is drawing them to Himself, is going to have questions. He's going to need some answers. And how we answer those questions is just as important as what the answer is. And so he ends up by saying, be knowing. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Why, Paul? This is a purpose statement. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What we are concerned so often is the what, but the how is just as important. You can share the gospel with someone. You can walk away thinking that you've witnessed to that person. But if you are disrespectful, if you're not gracious to them, you've accomplished absolutely nothing. Speak the truth, of course, but speak the truth in love. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3.15, in the last chapter of his last letter to the church, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And three verses later, his last words to the church, Peter said, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, new life in Christ should produce in the new man or the new woman, new speech toward God, that's our prayer, new speech toward outsiders, that's our testimony, and in general, just new speech toward each one that is gracious, seasoned, and knowing. If uh, you're here today and you hear this message, this is a message Paul gave to Christians. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have absolutely no hope at all in accomplishing this. You can't do it because you have no hope at all. I would encourage you, instead of attempting to apply this to your life, trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you want to know which Christ, go back and read chapter 1, verse 15 and following. That's the Christ we believe in. The eternal one, the one who became man. God became man and died on a cross to pay the eternal penalty for the sins of all who would believe in him. If you're not a Christian, believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins and trust him for your salvation. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.